Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Tuesday, February 1st, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the New York City subway cars taking on a second job on the ocean floor. Plus, a successful drone created using Leonardo da Vinci's aerial screw design. And crows in Sweden are being trained to pick up litter. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Right now, at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean are about 2,500 New York City subway cars. The retired cars, many of which had been on the tracks for about half a century, were dropped down off the coasts of Delaware, South Carolina, New Jersey, Maryland, and more as part of an initiative to create artificial reefs. When the project began in the early 2000s, the idea was to boost recreational fishing by increasing the marine life in each area. And it worked. A 2008 article in the New York Times details how a reef in Delaware went from seeing 300 fishers making trips there in 1997 to over 10,000 a decade later. The success seen in Delaware made other states start fighting over who would get the next dump of subway cars. But all good things had to come to an end. The initial subway cars dropped into the ocean were Redbird trains, which were produced throughout the 60s and retired through the 90s and early 2000s. Those have held up and become great homes for tons of marine life. The aforementioned reef in Delaware is actually named Redbird Reef after the Redbird trains. But when New York City's Metro Transit Authority retired the last of their Brightliner class of trains earlier this month, they did not send them off to become new homes for Atlantic fish. Instead, the trains are being shipped off to Ohio to be scrapped. And there are two reasons for this. First is that the program was more cost-effective when the MTA retired big batches of cars at once, several hundred or so. Now that they retire them just one or a handful at a time, it doesn't make as much sense. The process of cleaning them, stripping them, and transporting them is a heavy lift. And cost-effectiveness has always been the name of the game, more so than doing good for the environment, at least according to PBS. Turning the cars into reefs cost about two-thirds as much as recycling them, mostly due to the cost of removing asbestos before recycling, something that apparently isn't done when they're dropped in the ocean, and something that some were concerned about when the program began in the early 2000s. Could asbestos from the floors of the subway cars get into our food chain? Experts at the time said the amount would be negligible, enough to not be a concern. The subway cars were monitored for 10 years, and there was never any more talk about asbestos concerns, so that's not the reason the latest Brightliner cars aren't getting a new lease on life under the sea. No, there is another possible reason. See, while a few of the Brightliners kept running through 2020 or into this year, most of them were retired about 10 years ago. And when they were, the MTA shipped them off to the ocean like their Redbird predecessors. Only this time, all was not smooth sailing. Even though there was initial excitement for the Brightliners, Jeff Tinsman, then Artificial Reef Program Manager for the Delaware Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Control, excitedly called the new train cars the DeLoreans of the Deep to the New York Times in 2008. But within a few months, a number of the Brightliners had begun to disintegrate. The Brightliners were built differently from the Redbirds, and while they were stronger and lighter on the subway tracks, those differences didn't work underwater. Quoting Fast Company, 
The Redbird trains were made of carbon steel, which helps prevent corrosion. By comparison, Brightliners were made of stainless steel. When the subway cars debuted in 1964, they were a mechanical and aesthetic innovation. The stainless steel made the train cars lighter on tracks, but this worked against them underwater. Daniel Shee, an environmental consultant who's been studying artificial reefs for more than 50 years, says the project failed for two reasons. First, because the train's envelopes were spot-welded, which formed a thin layer between the two metals that led to corrosion. And second, because the corrugated pattern made it easier for undercurrent waves to grab onto and further pull the stainless skin apart. End quote. And while stainless steel is ordinarily resistant to corrosion, its protective layer doesn't hold up in seawater. Here's an explainer from the Federal Group, quote, Stainless steel is an iron alloy made up of 12 to 30 percent chromium. The chromium present on the surface when exposed to oxygen creates a protective coating. This coating, commonly called a passive layer, works to slow or prevent corrosion from entering into the substrate, thus making it to appear as a rustless surface. But like everything else, even this magical material has its limitations. Both fresh and salt water contain microorganisms that interact with each other to form layers of slime or biofilm. The slime creates acidic enzymes, and when covered by a film that prevents oxygen from reaching the surface of the steel, the steel cannot rebuild its protective layer, and it corrodes. End quote. Now, this doesn't seem to have affected all of the Brightliners, but with many of them collapsing in under a year versus the Redbirds that are still standing almost two decades later, you can see why repurposing the last few Brightliners as fish homes wasn't a top priority. But nonetheless, all of the subway cars together have made a huge impact in waters off the coast of several states, and saved the MTA about $30 million in disposal costs. In South Carolina, for example, they created 2 million cubic feet of new habitats for fish and invertebrates, according to Robert Martor from the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources in 2019. While initially the program was meant to increase marine life to help boost recreational appeal and fishing and scuba diving, such initiatives have now taken on a more environmental urgency. Fast Company notes that artificial reefs can restore lost habitats, enhance the marine ecosystem, and promote conservation efforts. While the push for biodiversity in the name of the climate emergency might be newer, the concept of artificial reefs is not. Quoting Fast Company, Artificial reefs date back to 17th century Japan, where rubble and rocks were used to grow kelp and increase commercial fishing stock. In the U.S., where such underwater projects are mostly built for recreational fishing, the earliest recorded artificial reef dates to the 1830s in South Carolina. In recent history, submerged shipwrecks like the famous SS Antilla in the Caribbean are the most common forms of artificial reef, but myriad other reefs have been made from oil rigs, streetcars, military tanks, and even underwater sculpture parks, like the reef line in Miami slated to open this summer. The world's largest artificial reef is made of 3D-printed ceramic and rests in the Maldives. Even the best materials can be used in the wrong location. When a series of tanks were deployed off the coast of Maryland, they sank right through the soft sediment. By comparison, World War II tanks at the bottom of the English Channel, where the ocean floor is harder, haven't budged. End quote. And New York State has not stopped making artificial reefs altogether. They have an artificial reef system throughout the Great South Bay and the south shore of Long Island, made up of old barges, tugboats, and even part of the old Tappan Zee Bridge. And New York City even apparently made a reef for oysters in Jamaica Bay using crushed-up porcelain toilets from public schools. 
Maybe we'll even work out how the newer subway cars in circulation now can be repurposed as artificial reefs in the future, without disintegrating. But until then, if you want to see what these subway cars look like going into the ocean and then after they've been there for a while, you can check out the YouTube link in the show notes for an old local news spot or the Artnet and Atlas Obscura links for photos from an exhibition done by photographer Stephen Mallon. And also check the Washington Post link for a video showing the oyster reef toilets. Leonardo da Vinci had a special interest in the power of flight. He produced studies on bird flight and drew out designs for several different aerial flight machines, although to our knowledge, he never took to the skies himself. And a number of folks over the years have tried recreating da Vinci's unrealized inventions based on his original designs, occasionally proving halfway successful, frequently not. But last week at the Transformative Vertical Flight Conference in California, University of Maryland graduates student Austin Preet presented his successful quadcopter based on da Vinci's aerial screw design. Quoting Interesting Engineering, Da Vinci's design consisted of an aerial screw that would push the air downward to generate the lift for flight. In his quadcopter design, Preet didn't rely on da Vinci's methods of propulsion, but used modern motors instead, and solved the problem of navigation. Small speed changes and propeller speeds help tilt in the desired direction as in today's drones." End quote. The quest to create a modern-day version of da Vinci's 530-year-old design began back in 2019, when Preet and a team of peers tested the underlying technology as part of a vertical flight design competition at the University of Maryland. Preet then continued to expand on the work for his master's degree, eventually building the Crimson Spin. A quadcopter drone, the Crimson Spin is currently the size of a typical consumer drone you might pick up at the electronics store, but Preet thinks it could scale up to transport a human. That's only if someone at the University of Maryland is interested enough and secures funding to continue working on it. Preet himself has graduated and is off to work in the field. But even if we don't get subsequent and larger iterations of the Crimson Spin, the vertical takeoff and landing sector has been creating a lot of buzz in recent years. Although CNET does note that the Crimson Spin has a few potential advantages over other VTOL designs. Quote, Delta wing aircraft, those with big triangular wings like the supersonic Concorde, produce a twisting vortex of air just past the leading edge of the wing. That vortex creates a low pressure zone that can increase lift. Simulations show that a similar vortex forms along the outer rim of the aerial screw's flat surface, spiraling down the entire structure and applying an upward thrust, Preet said. One result of these aerodynamics is that the aerial screw produces less downwash than conventional propellers. That means less dust, grit, and other blowing material underneath, Preet said. It's probably quieter, too. End quote. Whether it makes a mark on the industry or not, it's just really cool to see this design realized five centuries later. No matter how brilliant he was, da Vinci wouldn't have been able to create a vehicle with his aerial screw due to material limitations of the day. You know, wood, leather, and the like were all too dense. With aluminum, plastic, and batteries, not to mention computers to design and run simulations on, Preet was finally able to realize da Vinci's 500-year-old dream. And that, I think, is pretty cool.
According to Sweden, picking up litter is for the birds. A town outside of Stockholm will soon be home to a pilot program that will train crows to pick up cigarette butts and then put them in designated containers which then deposit food in return. It's about time we started making the animals work for us, he says 10,000 years after the Neolithic Revolution. According to Christian Gunter Hansen, the founder of the startup behind this initiative, the birds are all participating on a voluntary basis. Crows were chosen because they are, as The Guardian reminds us, as intelligent as a human seven-year-old. At least, I mean, crows are super smart. Maybe even too smart for this task, if you ask me. But if exchanging cigarette butts for bits of food proves popular enough with the wild crows, Gunter Hansen thinks the city could save at least 75% of costs associated with picking up the cigarette butts ordinarily. According to the Keep Sweden Tidy Foundation, more than a billion cigarette butts are left on Sweden's streets every year, more than half of all litter. Gunter Hansen and his startup, which, by the way, is called Corvid Cleaning, and is a tricky one to Google. I do not want cleaning tips to prevent COVID, no. Anyways, Corvid Cleaning is not the first to try employing crows as a cleanup crew. A French theme park tried it out back in 2018. Though there, it seemed to be more of a publicity stunt to raise awareness about littering. Kevin McGowan, a crow researcher who teaches at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology, told the New York Times at the time that it would be tough to train wild crows because the motivation just isn't there. But crows that have been held in captivity and crave mental puzzles would probably be game. And that is just what the French theme park did. It trained six of their crows from the park's Academy of Falconry to perform the trick of picking up litter for a treat, only though a few times a day, four days a week, so that they didn't get bored or exhausted. So could this real-world trial work in Sweden? Based on what experts said a few years ago, perhaps not. Though, despite the challenges they're up against, it seems like David Peskovitz at Boing Boing might be right. He wrote, quote, Fascinating that it's apparently easier to train birds to pick up litter than train humans to stop dropping it. End quote. Well, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.